0: Well, it was on a cold night in the Judean hills outside of Bethlehem in the year 5 BC that God's execution of his perfect plan was to take place. A plan that would change the course of human history completely. What happened for a child had been born unto us. A son had been given. And as we celebrate especially this coming week and next, as we celebrate our Lord's first coming, I want to explore with you a small portion of Scripture that clearly, clearly defines this miracle of our Lord's first coming. It is Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. And we're going to see in Galatians 4 that God had a very definite plan. He had a, A very definite plan. And God had a very definite person. And God had a very definite purpose. And that God had a prize, if you would, for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And I want to just give you a little bit of background on the epistle of Galatians, just real quick. The churches of the region of Galatia, this is who the epistle is written to, began to abandon the doctrine of justification by faith. The teaching that the believers in Christ are justified not by their works, not by their works, but what Christ had accomplished for them on the cross. This was the teaching that the apostles began to teach. It's the teaching of the Apostle Paul. That there aren't enough good works that we can do to justify ourselves, but rather we are justified by placing all of our faith, all of our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in the person of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sin. And Paul writes this epistle to correct the church. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, The epistle to the Galatians is the only one that has zero commendations for the church because they're abandoning the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were coming up with this thought that there is something that you can do. There's something that a person can do. It's the same old story, the same old time. Works righteousness. I can do something to earn the favor of God. And this time it was the Judaizers. The Judaizers had infiltrated the church. The Judaizers began to spread the gospel that faith in Christ is not sufficient enough. It's not sufficient enough. What you need is to observe the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the dietary regulations. You need to do all of the things in the law and have faith in Christ. And I'm going to share something with you. Faith in Christ plus something else Equals false doctrine. That's what it equals. So these Judaizers were following wherever Paul is. Paul would go in and preach to a particular church. They would come right behind and they would spread this doctrine that it is not faith alone, but you need something else to do. And the whole epistle to the Galatians is a rebuke. Paul would say, having begun by faith, are you now seeking to become perfect by the flesh? And that's always the tendency. The tendency is, we got to do something. We got to do something. Good works flow out of the believer not to please God, they, re- they come out of the believer because of the work of God has done in the believer. That's what produces good works. So Paul writes this church to correct that error, number one, and number two, to defend the gospel. He is defending the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to be looking at two verses in this text. Two verses. And I think that these two verses are, speak so loudly to the meaning of the first advent of Jesus Christ, to the first coming. And we're going to see, as I said, that God had a very definite plan. He had a definite plan of redemption. That number two, that God had a very specific and definite person to bring about that plan. Number three, we're going to see that God had a very definite purpose for that plan. And number four, we're going to see that God had a prize, if you would. Couldn't think of another word with a P. But that God had a prize for those that he wanted to execute that plan for. So again, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and we're just going to read <coughs> verses 4 and 5. I'm going to tell you today, we will I will be quoting a lot of Scripture. But the first thing I want to take a look at is, what is the plan? What was the plan of God? Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And here is the plan. But when the fullness of time came, let's break down this verse. We're going to look at the first portion. When the fullness of time came, God had a definite plan. And he purposed that it would come about in his perfect, sovereign timing now we all know that December 25th is not the birthday of Jesus can we put that to rest but there was a day somewhere in the year 5 BC where the birth of Christ where there is a historical record to the birth of Jesus Christ and it was at that precise time that God sent forth his son it was according to his perfect timing. It was according to his perfect will. The sovereign God of the universe will now execute the plan. And he will execute his will. And God, what did he plan for? God planned to address the problem of mankind. That's what he planned to address. It's the problem of the human race. And the problem was Sin, that which separates us from God that's what God is going to do and sin had to be dealt with it could not be ignored throughout the centuries even today human beings created their own ways their own ways and their own religion to deal with the issue of sin Now, the problem with man-made religions is simply this. They do not deal with the nature of sin. They don't deal with the nature of sin. Man is sinful, and it's evident everywhere. Everywhere it's evident. Our pride is sin. Our disobedience is sin. Our disobedience to others and to our parents is sin. And especially our disobedience to the commands of God is sinful. Our anger is sinful. Our immorality is sinful. When we're we're rude to another person, it's sinful. Right? Sin and the vestiges of sin are all around us. Our wanting to worship God... Our way is sinful. Our lies are sin. Our greed is sin. Our selfishness is sin. Murdering is sin. Looking upon the opposite sex with lust in our heart is sin. Our hearts are sin. Our unloving toward others is sinful. And the list goes on and on. You want to prove that man has a problem with sin? You see it all around us in the institutions. Here's the proof. We have police departments, don't we? What do we have police departments for? To stop crimes. What is crime? Sin. We have governments to rule us. Why? Because man is essentially selfish and will seek to do whatever he does to please him. We raise armies to defend our nations. Why? Because of the approaches and the encroaches of other nations that seek and desire the things that are ours. We have lawyers. We have court systems. All of this points to the sinful nature. If man was perfect, if man was infallible, we wouldn't need any of these things. We'd have no need for police. Because no one would steal from us. No one would rob from us. No one would take what is not theirs. But if God allowed sinful people to go free, Because he's merciful. That would make God unholy. That would make God unrighteous. And that would make God unjust. He would be unholy because he tolerates sinful behavior. How can a holy God, who is 100% pure and holy, tolerate sinful behavior? And that would make him unrighteous because he doesn't have a sense of righteousness at all. And lastly, it would make God unjust because he would have absolutely no sense of justice because he's allowing his justice to be violated constantly. And it always strikes me that other religions will tell you what you have to do to be made right with God. Every other religion will tell you that. But it is only historic, biblical Christianity that tells you what God has done that has made you right with Him. At this precise point in history, Paul writes here in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God's plan was to address the issue of sin. That's what his plan was. And what the ancient prophets had foretold, centuries before will now come to pass. Listen to some of these prophecies. Genesis 3.15. At the very, very, very beginning... God's prophecy to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Speaking of Christ's coming, his crucifixion, and how he'll put a death blow to Satan and put a death blow to sin. The prophet Isaiah some, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, writes this: For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Micah five two. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little among the clans of Judah, from one. From you one will go forth to me to be a ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. What was God's plan? God would send forth one, not an angel, not an animal, not some created being. But God will send forth a holy one, a sinless one, who will take upon himself the penalty of sin and become a perfect substitute and sacrifice, The sin of Adam will now be dealt with. The sin of Adam will now be atoned. And justice will be served against evil and sin. The innocent will stand in the place of the guilty. And justice will be served as the innocent willingly offers himself up. For the guilty. As Abraham told his son on Mount Moriah, when he went to sacrifice him in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said to his son, when his son inquired and said, Father, I see the wood and I see the stone, but where's the lamb? And Abraham, probably not even realizing what he was saying, said, Son, God himself will provide the lamb. And the plan of God is that God Himself will provide the Lamb. When? When the fullness of time came. So we see that God had a very definite plan. Let's take a look. God had a very definite person. What does Galatians 4.4 say? But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. He sent forth His Son. Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4 4, that the answer to this problem is the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Son of God who is one with the Father, the second person of the triune God. He is the one the prophets foretold that will restore God's people Unto himself, Isaiah seven fourteen again, approximately seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign: behold, a virgin will be uh, be with child and will bear a son, and will call his name Emmanuel. The Apostle John speaking of this verse in uh, the Apostle Matthew speaking of this verse in Matthew one twenty three quotes this verse in his narrative of the birth of Christ. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us, descended of the Father, of the same uh, substance and essence of the Father, As the Hebrew writer puts it in Hebrews 1-3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus Christ would be the specific person to bring about God's specific plan of redemption. And you know something? Every religion in the world has to address a fundamental issue. And that issue is, if God is holy... If God is righteous and God cannot tolerate impurity and sin, then it follows that he must not allow sinful behavior to go unpunished. That's a fundamental issue. If God is a holy God, if God is a righteous God, if God is a just God, then God cannot tolerate evil. He cannot tolerate sin. He is compelled to... By his very, very nature, if he is all those things, to bring divine justice against evil and sin and the vessels of wickedness, which are those who engage in it. If not, then this God could not be a holy God, a righteous God, or a just God. It's the essential question of deity that all religions have to deal with. Now, it is Jesus that the prophet Isaiah declared would satisfy that justice of God. Listen to Isaiah 53. These are are great. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, speaking, prophesied of Christ. Notice these words. But he was pierced through for our transgression. It's talking about a sacrifice here, right? It's talking about that now justice is being served, right? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. There's a penalty being paid here. You see this? A penalty is being paid. And someone is enduring that penalty. That someone there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah 53.10. But the Lord was pleased. Notice these words. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. You know, the guilt offering was that sinless, spotless lamb of God that had to be killed, not resisting, that was subsequently butchered and bloodied and placed on the altar of sacrifice. And the prophet Isaiah, by the anointing of the word of God, says, it pleased God. If Christ would render himself a guilt offering for the many, the Lamb of God, the person of Jesus Christ, was sent specifically What? To take away the sin of the world. The prophecy came to fruition through Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son, as proclaimed by the Apostle John when he said in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. This was reiterated by John the Baptist, When he saw Jesus coming to the river of Jordan, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Even the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because he is of God. As the Apostle Paul told the Philippian church, he existed in the form of God. Jesus Christ is the solution to sin and separation of the human race from God. Therefore, not only did he have a plan, but God also had the right person in Jesus Christ who could solve this problem. And Jesus Christ came in the plan with a very definite purpose. Let's look at the purpose. Back to Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who are under the law. I want you to catch these words here from the Apostle Paul. He sent forth His Son... Born of a woman. There's God incarnate. Born of a woman. And not only born of a woman, born under the law of God. What does that mean? He was subjected to the obedience of the law of God. And the Bible tells us that he did that with flying colors. Tempted and tried in all ways as we are, yet without sin, it says of the perfect Lamb of God. But the Apostle Paul goes further, and he tells us what the purpose is. Why? Why did Christ have to come? Why did Christ have to atone? Why did he have to do it? Look at the words there in verse 5. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Christ would be the Redeemer. Singular He would be the Redeemer. Not the human race, not through good works, not through our own religiosity or our own sacrifice. It would be Christ. Now the question we should ask, how exactly does Christ solve the problem of sin and separation from God? He solves it as a perfect, holy, righteous Sacrifice for sin that a just God uses to forgive the people's sins. As I previously mentioned before, if God is holy, righteous, and just, well then he cannot intolerate, he cannot tolerate impurity. He cannot tolerate wickedness. He cannot tolerate evil. God must be compelled by his nature not to tolerate sin. He must be compelled if he is a holy God. He must be forced to bring divine justice against evil sin and against those who sin. God must if he is holy. If he doesn't do that, he is unholy. So I want to give you an example Let me give you an example. Let's say if you sat in a criminal court one day and you were there for sentencing day. So you're there for sentencing and you're there to watch criminals be sentenced one by one. And before sentencing, the judge reads charges against them and they vary murder, (coughs) rape, extortion molestation, theft, embezzlement, assault, manslaughter, terrorism, whatever. Each one has been found guilty before the court. Each one has been found guilty. There's no doubt about their guilt. The evidence has been presented. It has been compelling. It has been overwhelming. They are guilty. And now they are awaiting their sentencing. Imagine a scenario where each criminal approaches the bench at the time of judgment and the judge arbitrarily lets each one go free without any repentance, without any confession, without serving any penalty for their crimes. How would you feel about that judge? One by one, these Heinous criminals are going up there and they're just being let free. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. You would say that that is a wicked judge. Because that judge, even though the law requires that there be a penalty, that judge is unwilling to enforce that penalty. He's a wicked judge. He transgresses the law. He's allowing criminals to go absolutely free and crimes to go unpunished. That's not mercy. That's not mercy at all. The criminal receives the same benefit as the victim. I'm a law abiding citizen. I live in my house in peace. My house was violated. I was attacked. I was assaulted. And in the end, the criminal has the same rights and disposition that I have? That's not justice. And imagine this. Imagine you were a victim of one of those criminals. And you were a victim of one of those crimes. And you sat in that courtroom and you watched them go scot-free without so much as even a reprimand. You would be indignant over the violation of justice that takes place. And I want to share something else with that. In that same scenario, let's say the judge said, hey, you've been convicted of of the following crimes, and there's eight or nine crimes, however. And the, the criminal stands there and says, your honor, you're right. I did all of them, you're right. But what you don't know is I helped an old lady across the street. And what you don't know is that I gave $1,000 to that poor person. And what you don't know is that I go to church every single Sunday. And what you don't know is I bow down and pray every single day. And what you don't know, I do a lot of good things. Let me ask you a question. Does his good works negate the crimes that he committed? No way. No way. If you were that victim, if you were that victim, if someone came to you who violated you and committed an act of crime against you, and you were in that courtroom, and they said, I did all of those things, and the judge asked you, you have anything to say, you would get up and say, sentence him. Because he's a violator of the law of God. Mercy is not the absence of justice. Mercy is not the absence of justice. And consequently, when man-made religions come and say, you must do this, you must do that. You want to know how to go to heaven? You got to do this. You have to do that. You have to pray this many times. You have to go here. You have to do this. You have to give out X amount of tracts. You, 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 you'll only be accepted if you do these things. It's the same thing. Because each and every one of us is a violator against the law of God. And if God were to look down upon us and say, Well, you know, I know you didn't do as good, but you know, I'm a merciful guy. I'm going to let you slide. God would be unholy, God would be unrighteous, and God would be unjust. Because justice is not going met. Good works have no impact on crimes that are committed against God. As believers, we do good works. Why? As Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had foreordained that we should walk in them. Good works do not get you salvation. Good works are the result of pure regenerative salvation in the believer. It is the fruit. Of the believer. Not the means of the believer. Therefore our good works or works of righteousness alone cannot save one's soul. It cannot save one's soul from the violations we have committed against God's law. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And in order to understand that verse, you need to understand what the word all means. Let me tell you what the word all means. It means all. It means everyone. There isn't a person in the universe who is holy and sanctified and before God and can stand on the merit of their own. All have sin. So if I pray a thousand times a day, but there's no atonement for my sin, those prayers do nothing. If I sacrifice a thousand times a day and, and, and I don't atone for sins, if God doesn't atone for my sins, it is worthless. It is worthless. This was the problem. This was the problem. Historical, biblical Christianity is unique in that it teaches that there's nothing you can do for yourself. Only what Christ has done for you. See, Christ paid the penalty. Christ was bruised and battered. Christ was the beloved of the Father who came down willingly And offered His life a ransom for the many. There's nobody else in any other religion that has paid the penalty of other people's sins other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to our faith, it's only through what Christ did that one can be made right with God. The human race... Was trapped, it was trapped in a sinful nature. And it was only through God's intervention that salvation became possible. So, what exactly did Christ do? And why did he do it? Why did he do it? You know this verse, John 3 16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, what? Should not perish, but shall have eternal life. And it's amazing because it goes on to say, we quote John 3.16 all the time, but we leave out 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. For he who believes is not condemned. Amen. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Did you ever stop and think what that meant? He's condemned already? Why is he condemned already? Why is the unbeliever condemned already? Why? Because you're in your natural state of sin and you need atonement and you need a substitute and you need someone to save you so he who does not believe is condemned you stand condemned you're that criminal in the courtroom you're the one on whom the charges are going to be read you're condemned already God's justice will be dealt. But unfortunately, it will be dealt against you. You'll pay the penalty of that justice. Listen to Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's salvation in nobody else. Nothing else. No other church. Nothing else. Salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven. But this is one of the most blessed ones. And write this verse down, this passage, because I hope you'll go down, you'll you'll go home after church and you'll explore this. It's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. 2 Corinthians 5 is a, is a marvelous chapter. And I encourage you to read the whole thing. But notice what Paul says here as he writes to the church at Corinth. Now, all these things are from God. Notice these words. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's what Christ did. He came and reconciled the human race to God. Look what else it says. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What did Christ do? He reconciled. How did he reconcile the human race to Christ? Remember when we go back to that example, if God is holy, righteous, and just? Well, here's a bulletin. God is indeed holy. And he does not tolerate sin. And because of the sin of Adam, Sin entered the human race. And where Adam sinned, all sinned, Paul says. And as I said, we don't have to go very far for us to realize that we're all sinners before God. God is holy, so the issue of sin had to be dealt with. God is righteous, His decrees are righteous, His judgments are righteous. That means they are perfect. They are without flaw. They are without error. Therefore, God's holiness must meet his righteousness. And in order for that to happen, God's justice must be served. What does that mean? God must act against sin, wickedness, and evil. How did God do it? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus becomes the perfect substitute. Jesus comes down, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Jesus willingly, willingly, from eternity past and in point of time, Jesus willingly offers himself up to the Father. Remember Gethsemane? Jesus is in the garden, Lord, if it be thy will. And by the way, who is Jesus praying to? He's praying to the Father, right? Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, Lord, thy will be done. What was God's will? Jesus, you're going at a cross. What was Jesus' will? Father, I'm going at a cross. Jesus willingly gives up his life, and now the perfection of God's holiness and righteousness and justice come all together as God pours out on His only Son the penalty of sin for all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The butchery, the barbarism, the torture, the blood that you see on the cross of God is God's divine justice being poured out against His only Son for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean to you and me? My sins. And the penalty for my sin. My blasphemy. My curses. My immorality. My impurity. My disobedience to God. My disobedience to my parents. My disobedience to my wife. My blasphemies, my sin, my immorality, my impurity, my hatred, my unforgiveness, my bitterness, my anger. All of that penalty was poured out upon the sinless Lamb of God who then paid it willingly. But I tell you something else. It would have been one thing pretty nice if the Lord died. But the proof that God had accepted Jesus' offering of himself was that God raised him from the dead. That was God saying, I accept this sacrifice. And it is a historic fact that he was raised from the dead. He was seen by over 500 people at the time of the writing, many of whom were alive at the time of that writing. He raised from the dead. He walked the earth for 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven. And church, you know it, you know it, you know it. And he's coming back again. But he's not coming back that babe in a manger. He's not coming back that lowly carpenter. He's not coming back like some little humble meek guy that you see in these ridiculous paintings. He is coming back the Lord of glory. He is coming back glorified. And He's coming back, by the way, in a human body. Flesh and blood. Hands, feet, hair, the whole works. But He's coming back to judge. He's going to ransom His church. And then He's coming back to judge. And you know what? There's going to be two groups of people in that day. Those whose eyes are happy to see him. Praise God! I've been waiting for this day all my life! And those who have blasphemed him and rejected him and he is coming back to judge. To judge righteously. Because Christ became a sacrifice for sin. As the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape the judgment of God if we neglect so great a salvation? Which is why the message of the gospel is come to Christ. Repent of your sins, turn, come to Christ, come to Christ. This is what was the purpose. This is what the Apostle Paul means here in 2 Corinthians 5 about reconciling the world to himself. God does not call us to do a litany of good works. Instead of us paying for our sins, Christ through his death on the cross took upon himself the punishment for all who believe and put their faith and trust in him. He was the only acceptable sacrifice to God. And this enables, by the way, I want you to catch this. This enables God to be the just God and the justifier of the one who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is why God's mercy isn't just arbitrarily letting sinners go free without penalty. No, the penalty was paid. And because the penalty was paid in Jesus Christ, therefore God can say, I justify my sister Janet. I justify my brother Louis because his sin has been paid. Now, is that just me speaking? No. Listen what Paul says in Romans three twenty five through 26. Speaking of Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As a result, the believer in Christ is not only justified, but the believer in Christ gains the eternal prize. Let's look at the prize. Galatians 4 5. That we might receive the adoption as sons. What is the prize? the believer is adopted into the family of God. We have sonship with the Father. We become joint heirs with Christ. The Apostle John wrote these words in John 1, 12, But as many as received him... To them gave He power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on His name. He wrote in 1 John 3.1 See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. And He goes on to add this little notation For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. So as we wrap this up, as we enter the celebration of our Lord's first coming, how much greater is it to know that this was not a random day in history? Instead, the sovereign God had a plan, had a person, had a purpose, and a prize for all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, Christianity is not some made-up religion here. If you ever want to trace the origins of Christianity, you know how far you go back You go back right to the beginning, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1. And you will find Yahweh from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. And you will see Yahweh and you will see Christ all through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And see Christ in eternal glory. There's no other religion that can make that claim. None. None. And instead of hoping for mercy, the believer can know mercy. The believer can know mercy. Instead of hoping for eternal life, the believer can know that I have eternal life with the Father. Why? Because I am a son of God! and We can know these things Not because of what we have done. But because of what Christ has done for us. Now here's the key. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you cried out and said, Father, forgive me a sinner? See, your sins need to be dealt with. God doesn't promise a rosy life. God doesn't say, if you believe in me, everything else is going to be fine. God says, you're infected. You have a disease. I have the cure. But you have a disease. And it's a deadly disease. But all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will in no wise cast down. Turn your heart to Christ. As we celebrate the Lord's first coming, repent of your sins, turn to Christ, and come and become a child of God. Cry out to God and say, Have mercy upon me, Lord God. Save me from my sin. I repent, O God. And I place all of my faith, all of my trust, All of my confidence in the only One who could forgive my sins. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.